0: And Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and it's right before Psalm. So if you have a phone or a a Bible, we we encourage you to turn there with us. And we read um, in chapter 5, we read this Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are... fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard Their outcry, Nehemiah says, and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop "'Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back,' they said, "'and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say.' Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised." I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep the promise, this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. That's about... um, that's about a grand a day. Their, um, their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of uh, reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to eat came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. The problem... In the opening verses of this chapter, we see what the problem is. There are a few factors that are playing into this opposition that Nehemiah is facing from within. What are the factors contributing to the opposition that Nehemiah is facing? We see in verse 3 that they're experiencing drought and famine. And in verse 4, high taxes. And in verse 5 and 6, high interest rates. From the remnant that went back to Jerusalem before Nehemiah's time, many of these people who went back to Jerusalem are of means. They're wealthy people. This is not to say that those who have money are evil. In this context, they are wrong. The people with money are in the wrong. What they're doing is that the country is experiencing drought and famine. Lack. They're experiencing lack of resource. They're experiencing high taxes. And what's going on is that these people who moved back prior, while there's all this work on rebuilding the wall going on over here with Nehemiah, the Jewish brothers and sisters of means are charging interest on top, so much so placing a burden on the people that they have to mortgage their own fields and sell into slavery their own children. So this is the problem, greed. The problem is greed within the Israelite community in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 5. We said before that the Puritans used to define Sin, they said, if you want to know what sin is, sin is life bent in on itself. And we see here from Nehemiah's narrative that selfishness has set in amongst the more wealthy of God's people. They begin to charge interest for loans. They begin to lay a heavy burden on the rest of the people. And most Bible scholars would agree that it's the last component, the high interest rates, charged by brothers, is that that's what's really causing the problem here. It's not that um, drought and famine are are bad deals, and you don't want to be there, right? But that's not the issue. The issue is that there's this huge public work happening to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And meanwhile, brothers and sisters are charging one another extremely high interest on the mortgaging of their own fields and their own vineyards and even selling their own kids into slavery. That's the issue. It's terrible what's happening. There's four, there's four things that are happening that are like a sequence of, avo- of events. And James Mo- Montgomery Boyce says that these four things are what's causing opposition. First, it's a hunger for lack of adequate food. And second, there's the mortgaging of fields for short term cash to pay taxes and buy grain. And third, there's a loss of those fields because of an inability to repay what was borrowed. And then fourth, there's the slavery thing that's happening the selling of sons or daughters into indentured servanthood or outright slavery for the sake of survival. It's not right. It's not right what's happening. So what's Nehemiah's response? We read in verse 6 that Nehemiah's response is that he's angry. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. We read last week in Nehemiah 4 that Sambalat and Tobiah, the Gentile rulers from around uh, Jerusalem, had the exact same uh, response when they heard that Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall. They were angry. The Hebrew word for angry here is like burning. Nehemiah is looking around. And remember how we started the book of Nehemiah. Remember how we started this this journey together. When Nehemiah learned that there is a remnant in, that, in Jerusalem and that the walls were in, in heaps of rubble, he allowed God to break his heart Sometimes the things that God will break your heart over when you continue to see injustices and then from within God's people, it will cause you to get mad. Nehemiah looks around at the situation and he says, They're, you're charging these people, you're, you're, laying, you're laying a heavy burden on our own people. That makes me mad. We're trying to do this thing over here that God has called us to do. And this charging of interest and in selling your own sons and daughters into slavery, this thing makes me mad. That's an injustice. When you see an injustice in, in the church or when you see an injustice out in society, it should make you mad. There should be something that rises up in you. I'm not talking about anger, anger, burning, hopping, mad when I hit somebody, punch somebody in the face. That's not what I'm talking about. But the Holy Spirit inside of you should raise a red flag and say, that ain't right. The way that, the way that we'll experience human trafficking during the RNC in a couple of weeks, little girls will be sold into slavery right down the block. That ain't right. That should make you mad. It should make you mad that there are folks all over the world who have to live on less than a dollar a day when we live in luxury and wealth. And I'm not talking about the tip-top 1% here. I'm talking about all of us. If you live in the United States of America, you are wealthy. You're a wealthy person. I'm talking about means, not satisfaction. That should make you angry. Something inside of you should say, that ain't right. As Syrian refugees pour out of their country because of civil war, you should say, that ain't right. Something's wrong with that picture. They shouldn't be driven from their home, homeland. There's a group of people at Vineyard Cleveland who said just that, uh, Tom and uh, Wadsworth, our associate pastor, and, and Rachel Jones on, on staff have done a marvelous job of bringing together what we affectionately on staff like to call the Vineyard Justice League. And they have done a great job at gathering folks to mobilize us to care for refugees we're saying you know it's not right and we not we we might not be this huge powerhouse of resources as a as an organization we might not have millions of dollars flowing through but we we we're saying that's not right and we we want to do our part to be jesus to these refugees who many of which are coming into our city. And so you'll find over the course of the next couple of months that there are families in our congregation who will take refugee families into their homes and will care for refugee families by providing uh, services like uh, English classes and English as second language and all of that. People in our congregation, I want to I commend you responding the way that Nehemiah responded In his way, you're you're not just getting mad inside. You're saying, that ain't right. And you're confronting the problem. You're confronting the opposition. So he's upset. Nehemiah's upset that this is happening. And he calls those involved to a meeting. Because he knows that in order to accomplish this work, he is Called them to do to build the walls. He calls a meeting, and the way that the way you as a leader respond to confrontation will determine the building of the walls in your life. And this is Nehemiah's character all the way. He's taking the road less traveled here and calling the situation in reality. He isn't sweeping the. Uh, Opposition or the offense under the rug. He isn't glorifying it either. He's simply calling a spade a spade. He calls a meeting and he tells the truth. He tells the truth and he compels his people to change. Verse 6 When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. He stops, he ponders them in his mind. It's a little self control. Doesn't let the anger get the best of him. He ponders these things. He expresses self-control. And then he accuses the nobles and officials. He calls the meeting. I told them, you are, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Called them together in a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. More on that in a second. So he's compelling his folks to change. And as you learn, like Nehemiah, to call out the good, well, how is this calling out the good? We'll explain in a second. Calling out the good in others during times of confrontation, you'll find that Jesus will enable you to be the leader he envisions for you to be. Nehemiah knows that community is dear to God's heart, and he restores unity among the Jews by calling out the good in others in order to change the bad. Where does he do that? He calls out the good by saying, um, moreover, that the people are watching you. How, how will people know? This is, this is calling the good out of these people. How will people know? How will the sandballots and Tobias, who are already causing you opposition, how will they know that you fear God if you're selling your own sons and daughters into slavery? It may sound like an accusation, but it's truly calling the good out of people and saying, you know, I believe better for you. I, be, I, believe, I believe better for you. You're better than that. You, and within the church, this is what this looks like. You're, you have more potential on your life than how you're living now. You're, you're, you're listening to the wrong voice. I believe better for you. You keep on going back to this substance, this, this drug, or you keep on going back to the bottle, or you keep on treating your spouse like this. I, I believe better for you. You carry Jesus inside of you. And more than just sin avoidance not doing bad things, you have the capability to shift environment for the good. And people are watching. I want to remind you brothers and sisters that people are watching. People are people are paying attention. They want to see. They want, they want to know. People want to know from outside of the church if Jesus isn't some fairy tale because you know that's what the better part of our society believes right now you you know this right people believe that Jesus is a fairy tale and very few people especially under the age of 35 have experienced the real presence and power of Jesus and you can you can be that for somebody And you can be a leader by saying, I believe better for you, brother or sister. I believe better for you. There's potential in your life. And finally, Nehemiah's response is one of worship. In verse 13, I also shook out the folds of my robe. Later, at this, the whole assembly said... Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Do you see the connection between worship and commitment? As we worship, people are able to keep their promises. As you turn your eyes off of your problem and onto the cross, you'll be fueled with a sense of purpose, and you'll be able to keep the promises that you make. As you worship God, you see it there? Look at it. At the, the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. I would say that the adverse is true. You cannot keep your promises in and of yourself unless you choose to worship Jesus. Worship getting our eyes off of ourselves. And on to the cross, onto Jesus, there's nothing that will uplift a community out of times of opposition from within than worship. Worship gets our eyes off of the problem and onto the object of our worship, Jesus. All of these other things that are involved in the confrontation within the church, all of these things that are involved in the opposition seem to fade into dimness as we see the person of Jesus lifted up. All of the church spats, your preference in preaching style, how we should or shouldn't be an outward-focused community, your preference in who is leading you in worship or who's not leading you in worship, who we should be serving, who should be in leadership or not, all of these things become secondary as we begin to worship and lift Jesus up. Our focus comes into right perspective as we worship, We begin to see things as they really are. And the right perspective is this, that this is the Lord's wall in the narrative of Nehemiah. It's not Nehemiah's wall. Likewise, this is Jesus' church. This is not Eben and Sarah's church. This um, This is not your church. This is the Holy Spirit's church. This is his church. It's not Nehemiah's wall. This is not Eben's church. It's not one leader's or one or two families' church or a board of directors. It's not who gives the most money or the least money. Vineyard Cleveland doesn't belong to the most gifted person nor the most holy person. Vineyard Cle- Cleveland belongs to Jesus. Vineyard Cleveland belongs to Him, and He's given us a mission together with our different skills and gifts. And most of all, the power of the Holy Spirit. Vineyard Cleveland is Jesus' church. And as we worship him, as we say, amen, yes, and amen, let your kingdom come. Let us be a people who bring life to the city. We see that the impossible becomes easy to step into. It's an impossible thing that we're all here gathered this morning. I mean, think about it. You did not, you, you, you didn't pick the people who are sitting next to you. You didn't pick to be in church with them. God brought them into your life. That's part of what community is. Learning how to live life well with people you didn't choose. We're so, we, we like to think that we're <laughs> so autonomous and you know and it's quickly turning that way with with social media you get to choose who your friends are you don't like people well you just delete your friends you just delete you just block those people you just block them out of your life you don't get to pick your friends you you don't even get to pick your husband or wife you think you have so much control over your life <laughs> you don't get to choose if you follow Jesus He's steering the ship. He's not turning you into a robot. You, you retain your, your identity. That's one of the glorious things about who Jesus is, is he brings out your identity. You know, he, bring, he brings to the surface more of who you really are. But you don't get to choose. Vineyard Cleveland belongs to Jesus. His presence is the only thing that matters. So long as Jesus is guiding us, so long as Jesus is feeding us, so long as Jesus is at the center, we can build this wall of bringing life to the city together. So lastly, what is the people's response? Verse 8 and verse 12. First, in verse 8, at the end, Nehemiah, Nehemiah shares the problem And then we read that the people who were gathered to this meeting kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And then in verse 12, they said, We will give it back and we won't demand any more from them. We'll do as you say. Silence. This is a tough one. This is a tough one in American culture. How difficult it is for people in our society to admit they are wrong what if we were a community of believers who were, was known as the people who were first to say sorry in confrontation? And that's a vulnerable thing because if you say sorry in America, you get sued. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, the <laughs> that's like the way it is. You You say sorry, that's like... Accepting that you were responsible. And no one wants to take responsibility in America right now. No one wants to take personal responsibility. That's a very hasty generalization. But I think that's pretty true. And even more so, what if we became known as a people who listened first and says sorry second. In confrontation, people feel valued when you take time to listen to what they're actually saying. We feel understood when we listen to others when we're not constantly trying to defend ourselves, and when we actually care about the other person's perspective, this speaks volumes as to where we are in our journey with Christ. This is one of the marks of a mature believer, that they have learned what it means to listen first in confrontation, to stay silent, and then being quick to apologize second. You know, how different church would look how different it would be if we were quick to say, you know what, I really blew it. If we were a people who said, you know what, I was in the wrong there. We're always quick to respond, whether we're in confrontation or not, we're always quick to respond, I know, I know. Somebody's telling you, somebody's telling you about some, something that's happening and, and pop culture or whatever. Yeah, that album, you know about that one album of that band? Oh, I know, I know. I know about that. You have you seen Oh, I know. I've seen that movie. I know. And anything, we're like, "I know. I know. Somebody's expressing their opinion." "I know. I know. I know. I know. I know, man. You're right. I know." We say "I know," but we don't say "you're right." Do you see the difference be- between saying "I know" and "you're right"? It's such a little thing. It's such a subtle thing that's a telling thing about how, how our culture processes who's, who's right and who's wrong. I know, you're right. It's so different. How much would the culture of our, chif, of our church shift if we were a people who responded in conflict or not? You're right. You're right. Giving up your need to be right will show others the character of Christ. You're getting... You're going you're, you're to be put in a position where you're, you're going to be faced with your need to be right. <laughs> you're going to need to give it up. This is who Jesus is. If he's the one you're following, you're going to need to give up your need to be right because he gave up his need to be right. He was always and is always the one to give up his need to be right. Think about it. Of every person who has ever walked the face of the earth, it was Jesus who had the most claim to prove his need to be right. After all, it was him who never committed one offense against God, not one. He was like us in every single way, men and women. But he never committed one offense against another human being or against God. Jesus was right all the time. Jesus is still right all the time. It's annoying. (laughs) He's right all the time. Every single time. You're right. (laughs) I should change. Evan, you're not treating Sarah the way that you should. You're right. (laughs) Evan, You could be more caring with your son, Luca. You're right. (laughs) Eben, that's not the way I want the church to be run. You're right. (laughs) You're right. He's right. He's always right. And that's what's so annoying about him. He lived in perfect communion with God. He was like us in every way, yet he never offended God or other people. Not just in sin avoidance. He didn't just not mess up. Like, he he didn't just not mess up. And he wasn't just a good person, but he was the most perfect person there ever was, and there ever will be. Furthermore, he gave himself for others by turning water into wine. They didn't need wine. They were already drunk. Jesus gives them more wine. That that offends our sensibilities. They were already drunk. Jesus gave them more wine. Here's more wine. (laughs) That offends your sensibilities, I know. Right now I feel it. He gave himself to others by turning water into wine. He also gave himself to others by restoring the sight to the blind, by bringing a dead man back to life. And Lazarus, he did more than simply not sin. He also ushered in the kingdom of God while the devil offered him everything he could ever want if he would just claim his right to be right. Just let people know who you really are. Prove yourself. But he didn't. How did Jesus deal with confrontation? He went to die a criminal's death for you and for me. He watched as they hammered nails into his innocent hands, giving up his need to be right. He was silent before Pilate as false charges were brought against him. His best friend betrayed him during the Last Supper, yet he died for that offense instead of declaring how he was wronged. And then he was raised from the dead because of this. Because, you ever think about that one? That Jesus, because he gave up his need to be right and to prove who he was, the Father raised him up to eternal life. He didn't consider equality, remember, as Paul writes. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, to win some cosmic argument. He gave himself up and he said yes to the Father by giving his life at the cross. And he was given eternal life because of it. And in doing so, he started to colonize earth with a new race of people, a new culture of people who would honor his presence in their lives above anything else. He began to make sons and daughters out of people who could care less for any, anyone else but themselves. And he began to teach them to give up their need to be right in confirmation. Let's give up our need to be right. To win some argument. And he's still doing that today. He's still in the business of transformation. He's going to transform people's hearts this morning. Why don't you join me in standing?